0: Good evening everyone. My name is William Thompson, and along with my co-host Karen Van Sweden, we discover how the economy really works all the while providing nourishment for independent minds. Every second Wednesday on Scotonomics, live on this very YouTube channel, we delve into how our modern economy works. Now we all know that something's wrong and that the economy isn't really working for all of us. In every episode, we ask challenging questions to leading economists from across the globe as we explore the myths and, in many cases, the lies that govern our lives in a modern economy. Now, we hope that Economics proves to be an essential viewing for anyone interested in Scottish politics and the Scottish economy. And to help us do that and to spread the word, please do like, comment and share during the show in the comments panel on the right-hand side, but also underneath, during and after. That will really help us spread the word. Tonight, we launch our Small Nation series by looking to Iceland. But before we do that, first things first, please welcome my co-host, Karen van Sweden.
1: Hi, William. Hello, hi. Man. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm just back from London. I've been down there with the Paid to Pollute campaign and I've literally found out two hours ago that we have a court date. On the eighth of December.
0: Oh, fantastic!
1: So that's yeah, that's two months. Two months to prep. Yeah, two months to prep, and I'd also just like to mention to the audience as well some really good news. Just before I went down there, and that is that Aberdeen University have chosen to divest from fossil fuels, which I think is a really good decision, both on an environmental level, but of course from an economic level, this is a good decision as well for them.
0: Oh, fantastic. And I also think the fact that it's Aberdeen University that's done it, it being the heart of the oil and gas industry in the UK, is really important. There are some universities who haven't divested yet. I think 75% of Scottish universities have. So I don't know which ones. I don't think Dundee has, which is where I went to university. So there must be another couple. So hopefully this will start the, the ball rolling. And, and on that topic, we're interviewing Ben Franta, who was involved in the Harvard Uh, divesting um campaign which was really successful and i think they got harvard to divest from oil and gas a couple of weeks ago maybe um last month september September. yeah september yeah so it's going to be fantastic interviewing him on i think it's the um 1st of november but i'm not 100% sure but we'll make sure we'll make sure we get to that anything else you've been up to anything else um, no, I, I've been quite busy with that. That, that, that was um, from Friday onwards. So. <laughs> and you're back. You're back because you, you were down in London, but you're back now. Um, well, well, we're covering. We're planning our coverage for COP26. So I've been thinking a lot about that, and I'm delighted to say that you will be attending uh, the event this year in Glasgow, won't you?
1: Yeah, I'll be at one of the fringe events talking about why I wanted to get involved with the Pay to Blue campaign. So I think that will be the eighth or the ninth of November.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, I attended COP25 in Madrid, um, which was in 2019, because obviously nothing happened last year. And I've posted a video on the YouTube channel and it covers a presentation from the International Air Transport Association. And really, I think it says everything we need to hear about the chance of achieving a 45% reduction in carbon emissions, uh, carbon emissions that we need by 2030. Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, it is we've got no chance if business is allowed to continue with business as usual. So it's a six minute video, please do click on that, uh, have a watch and let me know what you think. Uh, I've also been thinking a lot about the removal of the £20 a week universal credit uplift that officially ends tomorrow, but I think we can speak a little bit more about that after the video. And speaking of the video on tonight's guest, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about who our viewers can look forward to hearing from?
1: So this is a really interesting guest for you tonight. This is Dr. Dr. Olafur Margierson, and uh, he is currently based in Switzerland. He is the head of global real estate research at Credit Suisse and a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, and also an alternate member of the supervisory board for the Central Bank of Iceland. So this was a fascinating interview.
0: Yeah, we were very lucky to get him. I mean, his he's Twitter handle is um, uh, Iceland Economist, I think, or Iceland Econ. Icelandic so... Econ. Yeah, yeah, so he really is the person to speak to about this. There's a, It's a wonderful 45 minutes. There's loads of interesting information around Iceland and how it relates to Scotland. So mm-hmm. here we go. I hope you enjoy it. Please do comment um, in the chat and underneath as well, because that really helps us get a little bit more awareness of the show. Enjoy, and we'll see you in about 45 minutes. See you soon.
1: You have the oldest parliament in the world. You are 500 miles north of Scotland. You have a population, I think, of 335,000 people. Um,
2: 64. Don't take the... you know, don't don't increase
1: it. <laughs> um, and Iceland became independent. It became a republic. Um, what what I read is it became independent in 1918. It it was a colony of Denmark, um, but it became a republic in 1944 while Denmark was occupied. So you yep. have been an independent country since 1944 so we really want to delve into the economics of that and i wanted to know first and foremost about when your own currency was formed and um, and when that that came into use
2: having our own currency that uh, i don't remember exactly the year whether it was 1874 if i remember correctly it was at the end of the 19th century um, and essentially, it was a part of the independence movement. We had been um, pushing for more independence um, for yeah quite a few decades before we finally got it. Exactly. We got the home rule in 1918 and then full independence in 1944. But the Icelandic currency was actually established by law, like I say, if I remember correctly, in 1874. And that's Basically, when we started having more influence over our own treasury, essentially, we still we were still packed to the Danish Krona. Um, And in fact, after 19, uh, during the uh, in the in the in the intermediate uh, wars, we uh, years between the wars, we were packed to the British pound, actually. Um, then after 1944 around that time we were packed to the dollar essentially and then we went fully floating in 2001
1: free floating in 2001 yes so the next thing that probably our listeners would want to know after that was um soon after seven years later came the financial crash So this this obviously was big news in Iceland um, and it was big news here in Scotland as well. I think people were very enamoured with the Icelandic people because we heard that you put some bankers in jail. And uh, (laughs) so so this seemed almost heroic to people, certainly on the left uh, in Scotland, I would say. So what happened in 2008 and how did the Icelandic economy cope with it? So
2: the 2008... we need to start quite a bit earlier. Um, so, we joined, so Iceland joined the European Economic Area, the EEA, in 1994. That meant that we were required in the end to have a free f- uh, flow of capital um, between the Icelandic economy and the rest of the European Economic uh, Area. Now, at that time, we were still packed uh, to actually a basket of currencies by that time, but we had a band uh, plus minus 15% um, in the end actually. Uh, it was it was narrower, but we, were, we expanded the band that the currency was allowed to fluctuate um, up to 15% until we went free floating in 2001. Now, what happened, around the same time was that there was a push for privatization uh, and deregulation of the financial industry in Iceland. Um, The banks, they were privatized in the early 2000s. And in 2004, that's when the true sort of bubble began. And the the bubble essentially began, um, at least when it came to the real estate uh, market in Iceland by the banks starting to uh, offer, back then, (laughs) cheap mortgages. Basically, long story short, um, both the household sector and the corporate sector in Iceland expanded its credit absolutely massively. Um, The banks, they created that credit uh, simply on the spot, as banks do. Um, and then in the end, actually, we topped, if I remember correctly, above 300% of GDP. That was the amount of private debt in the economy. And as as a comparison right now, the Chinese economy is around 250, 280% of private debt to GDP. And just looking at markets, that was around 100% of GDP. So it was an absolutely astonishing bubble that was blown up. Now... Because the bubble was right there, uh, first of all, what happened was that you had plenty of tax income for the government. And so actually the government was running a surplus at that time. However, because we were creating so much credit, i.e. money, we were also uh, pushing the current account deficit downwards. And actually, I do believe Iceland holds at least the European record in a current account deficit. In 2006, we had a 25% G, uh, percent of GDP equivalent of uh, the the current account deficit, and basically what happened after that it was there was no turning back. In 2005, 2006, just looking at the current account deficit, it should have been obvious that we were going to hit a wall. But as money as go, they simply are not believed for a long time. There is there is a, some sort of a credibility and there is credit that is being created and you know the good times are right there and so still today actually we speak of like if you have an extravagant behavior if you are showing off your wealth sometimes still today people are said to be a bit 2007 okay and then essentially um finally the bubble burst and the currency la- um dropped about 50% essentially um the banking system went bankrupt in about 10 14 days uh, if i remember correctly 90% of the banking system if we look at uh, assets went bankrupt in those in those two weeks and the uh, essentially the the central bank needed to take over entirely the international payment uh, system that was basically funneled into iceland so basically the the central bank tried absolutely it's absolute most to save the banks they they gave them um, super actually it wasn't cheap but they gave them a lot of credit Uh, they gave them uh, fx loans Uh, they tried to uh, basically they tried everything to keep them afloat but essentially the bubble was too large and in the end uh, it all exploded in our faces
1: I think you, you said in the in another interview that they they did actually give the banks some of their foreign reserves as
2: well. Yes, 500 million euros, which absolutely, it doesn't sound a lot, but back then it was the majority of the FX reserves that uh, the Central Bank of Iceland had.
0: Could, could I ask you a follow-up question on on the um, Central Bank? How important was it for Iceland to have its own Central Bank in 2008? and And how do you think... Iceland would have coped differently uh, with the crisis if it didn't have its own central bank. And the reason I'm asking you that is because the uh, recommendations within the Sustainable Growth Commission, which is a a fairly recent report um, carried out on behalf of the Scottish Government, suggests that an independent Scotland would retain the Bank of England as its central bank um, for a... it's probably unfair to say an indefinite period, but it's an unspecified amount of time, which could be up to 10 years.
2: There are two things, essentially. Um, First of all, it's the currency question, and second, it's the payment system question. Now, the currency question is rather obvious. Um, I mean, you could probably get the Bank of England to create the Scottish pound uh, and use that as your, your currency. That would be a funny institutional setup, but I suppose that's possible. Um, but essentially, the, the Icelandic corona is, of course, it is created by the Icelandic central bank. And usually, if you have a nation uh, running its own basically monetary system, you have a nation run uh, basically just having its own central bank as well. So that so if you are going to have a Scot, the Scottish pound just like Iceland has the Icelandic Krona, then yes, we would have, um, you would have a Scottish Central Bank, just like Iceland has a Central Bank. By the way, the Icelandic Central Bank was only established in the 1960s. Before that, the Icelandic currency or the Krona was actually just issued by one of the banks, which actually had a special right from the government to do so. But long story short, that was essentially we created our Central Bank in order to, fully control the issuance of our own money one of the aspects of the collapse in iceland was that there was the problem about the instability of the currency and one of the reasons for why there was an instability of uh, on the on the exchange rate of the icelandic krona was the peculiarity of the icelandic market system it's basically still today it's built up by uh, markets which have negative amortization. I'm not going to go into the full details unless you ask me, but basically one of the consequences of the market system, especially back then, because the markets, uh, markets with negative amortization, they were even more prominent then than they are today, is that the monetary policy of the central bank doesn't impact the demand side of the economy as much as it usually does when the cash flows of the markets are more influenced by the monetary policy than with negative amortization laws. I hope this makes sense. Basically, long story short, one of the reasons why Iceland has had such a high interest rate differential with the rest of the world is because of the market, uh, is because of the market system in Iceland. And if you have a high interest rate differential, what you do, especially when you have the free flow of capital uh, between the economy and the rest of the world, is that you create the incentive for a carry trade. You basically borrow in a low interest rate currency, you move the money over to Iceland and you take the bet that at least for a while the currency will not lose its value. While you are accruing interest, and then you move the money back out, and this back and forth hot money flows, they create instability on the exchange rate. This instability on the exchange rate makes it difficult, especially for an economy which is so dependent on imports as the Icelandic, Icelandic economy is, it makes it difficult to create any um, expectations about the price level. It's. Difficult to be in the import business in general, because you need to have a huge buffer in your plans in order to make sure that your profits as an importer are not harmed, etc, etc. So there was a huge conversation after the crisis um, in 2009 and 10, especially what was the role of the Icelandic krona in creating the crisis, because... It was one of the sort of scapegoats um, that was right there. Partially, I'm sure you know th- there was there was some partial truth in it, but as you always sort of see when you have a a, a long, hard conversation about politics, it usually was um, um, the truth was probably somewhere in between. Essentially, you know, the central bank or not. The more important part of it about it and why it was so important to have a central bank when the crisis happened was that we were, thanks to the central bank, capable of continuing having trade with the rest of the world. So, yeah, that I... was the most important sort of institutional structure of the payment system. And thanks to the central bank, that was sort of achieved.
1: When you're talking about your currency and the uh, the, the, perhaps people blaming the currency for maybe uh, for difficulties in the economy. It's like you're, you know, me blaming centimeters for carrying a little bit more body fat than I want to. You know, you can't blame the metric. The metric's not the issue. Correct. The issue is Correct. the real resources and the way that your politicians are are uh, are manipulating your real resources.
0: You said it was incredibly important to maintain. The economy um, through the, through the payments and also the support that it tried for the banks. I take it you would have, you wouldn't be saying that another central bank would have been able to provide that service for Iceland. And certainly, I know that when Iceland tried to enter into swaps with other central banks during the the, the, the crisis, they weren't they weren't even interested. So the idea that you could rely on another central bank to support the internal economy when they weren't even happy to support um, their own economy by making sure they were getting payments from Iceland would be a little bit of a step too far so the, the importance is and in, in having that central bank
2: I I do believe that, well I do think that it would have been a lot more difficult at least from I mean think about the panic that was going on as well and if 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 let's say that there was a branch of the European Central Bank that was responsible for making sure that the payment system was up and running As much as the institutional system is set up and as as fluently it works within Europe when it comes to the payment system and all that, it's hard to imagine that the fluency and the, the pace had been the same. I'm sure that, you know, in the end, essentially... You just need to make sure that whether it's going to be your own central bank or a branch of another central bank that makes sure that the payment system can take a hit, such as the Icelandic system took back in 2008. Essentially, you just need to make sure, just make the note function, whether it's going to be... I don't care what sort of a node it is, it just needs to function. Um,
1: I, I also wanted to ask you about some of the the the, the real resources in Iceland as well. So, um, obviously, Iceland very famous for for having a a, a huge amount of energy, um, geothermal energy. So this is a huge resource for you as well. Um, I I re- realised from watching Leslie Riddick's film as well that. Um, there was some change in thinking after the 2008 crash and also on environmental level as well for growing more food in Iceland. So I think maybe your agricultural um, sector maybe expanded after that. There seemed to be some more um, emphasis into growing your own food in Iceland. Is that the case?
2: Not markedly, I think. But it has been more push on, for example, just making sure that we are respecting the boundaries that nature are nature essentially sets us, that's definitely one. Uh, with regards to the food industry, yes, there has been a uh, push on, for example, allowing farmers to capture more of the supply line. Um, I mean, there is a there is a right now, farmers, they, they are not legally allowed to slaughter their uh, livestock at home, for example, and sell it directly to hotels, which would make it much easier for them to generate income to basically have a a happy and healthy life. And likewise, the fishing industry has been developing quite a lot of new technologies and improving its supply line um, and basically basic sort of manufacturing uh, sort of methods in making sure that they can actually use more of the ingredients that they have, which is, of course, the fish. So I'm not... I don't think there has been a specific push on, you know, the individuals, you know, having, you know, vegetable gardens or anything like that. But there has been definitely a push on making sure that we are making more use of the inputs that we have. If you just compare how much energy we generate. um, So Norway, if I remember correctly, is number two uh, in per capita energy generation in Europe. Uh, We are number one and we have double Norway. We absolutely, we are in a league of our own uh, when it comes to that. Um, we have so much energy, we, frankly, we almost don't know what to do with it. Um, we, of course, we have geothermal uh, to heat up our houses. Um, nobody uses gas uh, or oil uh, to heat up the houses. And uh, in many cases, you actually have the the car, like the, the car parks in front of your houses. They are actually quite often just warmed up um with geothermal water because in many cases we actually do need to decrease the temperature of the water before we uh, before we pipe it into the house because it's too warm and for security reasons we need to make sure that it's cold enough to go into the house um essentially so that's one um now, from the energy generation, electricity generation, sorry, in Iceland, uh, about 85 to 90% of it is bought by aluminium smelters. And there are three uh, in Iceland. Now, the problem with the aluminium smelters is, yes, of course, you know, most of it is hydro um, by far. And from a pure sort of CO2 point of view, that's absolutely true. Hydroelectric uh, uh, generation is certainly sustainable, but you definitely still sacrifice a lot of land uh, to have the, essentially the uh, lagoons or the the dams. And that land which has been sacrificed in the past has in many cases actually been quite valuable. Uh, Even if you don't put a monetary value on it, it has been valuable for example for biodiversity reasons, there have been areas which were used by birds to nest in, Few of um, few similar areas in the whole of Europe, essentially, and so we sacrifice actually quite a lot of things um, for this. So there is definitely a, there is going to be a some sort of a line that needs to be drawn at some point. Some people want to draw it at one point, and another people want to draw it right over here. So that's going to be a a, a question of how you want to use the natural resources that actually Iceland gives us. At the same time, of course, the problem is that, you know, the aluminium smelters, they, yes, we generate a lot of green electricity, but because we are generating or we are manufacturing aluminium in Iceland, actually, CO2 per capita in Iceland is the highest in Europe. So it's not all green.
1: That's really interesting. I, I noticed that on your your Twitter page uh, you have a notice up about the loss of the glaciers. And
2: yes, really, exactly. Yes. Very distressing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and there you can definitely see a a shift um, towards sustain or basically environmental sustainability after the crash because and thanks to. The tourism industry, basically, reviving the Icelandic economy. Um, Basically, there are, to a large extent, you can simplify a bit the 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 sort of the sectors which are driving the exports um, exports of Iceland. You have the fishing industry, you have the aluminium smelters, or basically uh, manufacturing, uh, so we put it, and you have the tourism. And before nineteen nineties, we it was the majority was fishing. After the construction of the smelters and the construction of the dams that were used to uh, generate the electricity for the smelters up until about 2008, you saw that um, aluminium uh, exports, they became about, say, one third or so, or a bit more of uh, the exports as well. So you basically had fishing and aluminium. And now we have tourism as well. And because of this improved diversification, the economic case for, as some people would say it, drowning Iceland in, in, in lagoons to generate electricity, it has definitely lost some of its strength. Simply because tourists, they come to Iceland exactly because it is publicized as being pristine and untouched and clean, essentially. And you can't have it both. You can't both have a dirty aluminium smelters in your backyard and then at the same time sell the front yard as being clean.
0: It's very interesting, Olaf. You're you're talking about the lack of diversification in the Icelandic economy. And one of the um, characteristics of the Scottish economy is it's actually quite diverse. And when we often look at the Scottish economy, people think it does one of a couple of things. You know, it's oil and gas it's salmon and it's whiskey, but actually it's a really diverse uh, economy, considering the size. When you look at an economy, how important is the diversification of that economy, especially if it's relatively small for the likely success of, uh, of a nation? Well, usually when you have like basically long story short, it's like biodiversity. The
2: more complex it is, the more resilient it is. And it's the same thing for an economy. The more complex it is, the more resilient it is. Iceland, you can you can argue that Iceland got lucky, essentially, um, because we've, especially over the last 10 years or so, we have been growing faster than the rest of Europe because our export industry, tourism, has been growing so fantastically well. But at the same time ex- exactly because tourism is such a an important part of the economy Iceland actually got hit harder by the covid than many other economies because essentially tourism just shut down immediately and so if you have more diverse activities going on in the economy then it is less of an importance any shock that happens to one of them because the rest of the uh, rest of the activities they can carry the economy onwards
0: another similarity i wanted to pick up on was that scotland and iceland both have this abundance of natural and renewable energy energy resources could you mentioned earlier about people hot water coming into people's houses and things like that and um, can you give us an idea of how well this resource um translates into the amount that people pay for their energy, for example. You know, I'm sure you probably know this, but 97% of the energy generated in Scotland is renewable. So but there's a huge similarity in terms of how much renewable energy. Um, is there a difference in what people are paying for that in Iceland and Scotland?
2: So I haven't checked recently, but while I was doing my studies um, in Exeter um, quite a few years ago, uh, about 10 years ago or so, the, the cost was the, the, basically the energy cost curve... That's a
0: natural relationship, isn't it? You assume that with a huge amount of supply, that there's a reduction in price. And that's something for, for, for a variety of reasons, which doesn't seem to be happening in, in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of
2: the reasons why we have so many aluminium smelters in Iceland is exactly the fact that energy is cheap. It, I mean, it it literally makes economic sense to import all the raw stuff, you know, put it into a smelter, melt it, get the rods out and ship them back over to Amsterdam. Just because energy in Iceland is so cheap. So there must be something about it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, and so like, yeah, exactly. To your point, exactly because we have such an abundant amount of energy per capita, its, its cost is very low. It's as simple as that.
0: Privatization has played a huge role in the UK economy since the 70s. What role has privatization played in uh, Iceland, including land and, and utilities?
2: Uh, so, utilities, they are, it depends uh, on what exactly. So, the distribution network is not privatized, but you do have private energy companies. Um, so, essentially, they can, you know, sometimes it's even tiny. Um, you know, mom and pop's sort of, uh, you know, energy companies that are literally just on somebody's land and that, um, that little tiny little uh, energy production is, you know, used to obviously run the, the farm or something, and then it's also sold onto the distribution network, but by and large, the most, of, by, by far, most of the energy production is produced by public, as in publicly owned company, uh, sorry, Companies owned by the government or a government, um, whether it's a municipality or whether it's the the government itself, usually that is the case. Um, I mentioned before the privatization of the banks that ended up in uh, the the credit bubble, which ended up in the crisis. But likewise, we did privatize, for example, the the phone companies as well. And in fact, we privatized as well the the airline industry and you know private companies in those industries they definitely pushed down for example the cost of um of the goods and services that were being supplied in those industries but essentially long story short what has been sort of been the guiding principle is as long as there is a natural monopoly in the industry it is not privatized that applies to, for example, the energy production and the energy distribution market.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if you're aware of this, but our transmission charges um, in Scotland are uh, £7.36. And down in England, they're 0.49 pence. I just spoke Uh to someone last night who uh, put up a windmill in their land and they told me that they were charged a six figure sum to connect to the grid
2: that is high <laughs> and i'm not I'm not you know particularly sort of knowledgeable about that sort of industry or like the the sort of you know that infrastructure in iceland but the the principle when it comes to the distribution um network it is like i said it's owned by a company which is owned by the government and it has the, the purpose of making sure that the distribution network is efficient and secure, but it does not need to make profit on it. It's meant to be national, um, nationally eff, uh, efficient or basically efficient on a national scale.
0: One of the things we like to point out on Scotonomics is when there is an anomaly uh, in the United Kingdom. And as you said there, most countries, not just Iceland, but most countries look at natural monopolies very differently. And the United Kingdom is one of the very few countries that has decided to privatise anything. If it moved in the 80s, it was privatised. So, so so, thanks for helping us point that one out.
2: When I moved from England over to, to Switzerland, I noticed a difference in the, in the train system. Let's put it that way. The 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 publicly owned system here is absolutely fantastic. Um and as an example, their sort of definition of being on time is 90 seconds, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So and they usually they basically get it. It's like that their target is, if I remember correctly, is to be on time. That's not more than 90 seconds late. And uh they reach that 90% of the time. And I mean, they look at basically Switzerland. They look at the the train system here as a natural monopoly, and they they run it as such.
1: What what was listened to as well today, talking about Iceland, was the idea that you know you have this Lutheran culture, perhaps also in Switzerland as well, where people are thinking about the common goal of your country. You know, what's the common goal of your country and how are you going to make it function as a country and make it function well? You know, I lived in the Netherlands for five years. Yes, they had a very good rail system there as well. Um so, it, you know, it's, it's in, and in the Netherlands, they talk about the polder model. So these are people who literally pulled their country up out of the marshes and created it as it is and have spent recently huge amounts of money, billions of, of euros um, on flood defences, which is why they weren't so affected by the recent floods as Germany and Belgium were as well. And it's that feeling of a, a national goal. Like, this is what, what, what we have to do. And I think the, the nationalization of, of these natural monopolies is, is correct. But it's also getting the people who run them to also have that, that feeling that it's, it's, we have a common purpose. I think that's also something that uh, has to be instilled.
2: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, like I said, it's the, the case when it comes to Iceland. I mean, we internally, we fight like, like cats and dogs uh, all the time. Definitely. Um, You know, politics in Iceland, they are just as lively as in any other country. Um, And I can at the same time, whenever there is has been a bit of a when the decision has been taken, I think we can. We can claim that we do work together on actually just achieving it. It's as simple as that. And fine. You know, Iceland doesn't have a train system. But we do, for example, make sure that, okay, the decision has been taken to, for example, make sure that the, say, the healthcare system is functioning properly. And there are still conversation in Iceland right now, whether, for example, we, we're going to use um, you know, privatization or private companies in the healthcare industry or not. And there are Next, you know there are different opinions about it but at the end you there is a very it's very difficult to say that the healthcare system doesn't work. There are going to be some aspects of it that people they still are arguing about how to execute. But everybody agrees we are going to have a really good healthcare system and we are going to make sure that the funding is there. And that's basically and then like you know quite frankly it's sometimes almost the the grand sort of target is right there, and it is achieved. But it's the little wrinkles around the sort of the edges which often get quite a lot of attention.
0: Um, Iceland, 500 miles north of Scotland, small nation. Um, if Scotland becomes independent, we're looking around us to see what relationships other small countries have with the bigger kind of international institutions. Would you like to give us a little bit of a a description of how Iceland is integrated with the European Union um, and also um, Iceland's role in or outside of NATO, because these are two big questions that Scotland will answer once it's independent, its role with the European Union and its role with NATO. Could you tell us how Iceland deals with those? Sure. Um,
2: So we became a a member of NATO actually quite early Um, and essentially iceland has always profited a bit about you know because of its geographic location um, we were occupied by the british uh, in world war 2 and then after the world war 2 essentially the the by the way the british they they built the airport, and then in the 1950s um the sort of you know, because of the communism and the fight between capitalism and communism and the USSR and the US back then, essentially, the US set up a naval base um, or a base in uh, in Iceland in the 1950s. And that was actually, it was the US that built the Keplervik Airport, which today is the international airport. Now, essentially, because we essentially, unfortunately, if you may put it that way, we got rich because of World War Two. We were selling fish over to the British uh, after World War II. We used the location of the country to basically lever um, the the surveillance capacity of the U.S. Um, in Europe and of the USSR. And per, per actually per capita, we got most from the Marshall Assistance, uh, as an example. And a lot of that money went into building up the infrastructure in Iceland right now roads bridges airports etc etc and essentially it was never a question whether Iceland was going to be a nato member or not it was simply just by definition almost simply because we were right there with the us and the uk right in our backyard and we were still under the influence of you know it was the the, the, the same sort of conversation about the you know the the threat from the east etc so that was that was a very easy choice sort of sort of with regards to the european union so iceland is a member of the european economic area which is which includes the european free trade agreement or EFTA. we are also a member of the schengen area and what this means essentially is that we are required to have a free flow of goods capital and people for example and uh, likewise we need to adopt some of the european regulations uh, that are set up uh, or basically decided by the european parliament for example on consumer protection and uh, marking of goods and services etc and There has always been this conversation in Iceland, whether that's fair, because we don't have any member on on the European Parliament. We simply just need to, because we are a member of the EEA, just like Norway is, for example, or Liechtenstein, we need to adopt the rules, even if we can't say anything about how the rules are formed, or very little about it.
0: To finish on NATO, you're a member of NATO, but Iceland doesn't have any armed forces, does it? We We have a SWAT team
2: okay okay if if I remember correctly we have uh, it's I think there are like 20 members in the SWAT team Um, they are usually I don't know uh, I don't know how often they are actually uh, called out by the police like maybe four or five six times a year I honestly don't know Um, mm-hmm. but we do have a Coast Guard as well and but honestly those I mean the Coast Guard ships we have four if I remember correctly we have four ships and only one of them has any capacity of firing anything. And if they fire something, they fire a, a power shot.
0: That, that's really interesting for a couple of points. The first one is that um, one of the arguments about Scotland uh, is that it wouldn't be able to join NATO if it got rid of nuclear weapons. And whether or not you're in favor of joining or not, that's one of the arguments. And looking at Iceland, it, it's a member that has 20, 20 members of a SWAT team and four boats. And it's a member of NATO. So I definitely think that one doesn't hold particular weight. And then the second really interesting point is about how much you spend on defence and also the resources that you have to guard, you know, which is a relatively big island. So so that's quite interesting in terms of the resources that you put into the defence is certainly something I think our, our audience can can use to question uh, approaches approach as an independent nation. Yes, I wanted to know as well a little
1: bit more about your um, your social security. So your social security of when, for example, someone finds themselves unemployed, but also your pension system as well. So in the Netherlands, the uh, your unemployment benefit is 90% of, initially, not, not for, over the long term, but initially it's 90% of your most recent wage. Um, and I think the pensions again—it's it's something like along those lines as well. Um, so, what's what's the situation with social security in Iceland? Uh,
2: so we have um, now, if I remember correctly, the unemployment benefits—they uh, are—they're not ninety percent, but they are eighty percent, if I remember correctly, of the most recent uh, wages, if I remember correctly. Um, but they were changed because of the COVID, um, because of the COVID uh, shock, actually. And of course, because we have our own currency, etc., you know, we can finance whatever we want to uh, in the Iceland currency. It may have inflationary pressures or not, but we can finance it. It's it's, it's as simple as a that's a political choice, which you know has some economic consequences. Um, when it comes to the pension system, uh, so right now the uh, the assets of the pension system they are equivalent of about 200% of the GDP. Most of them are in domestic bonds, um, foreign equities, and uh, in fact, in domestic mortgages as well. I have been pushing on the, uh, the pension uh, system to start building up and renting out flats as well, but that still hasn't been one of the sort of targeted asset classes yet. But essentially, it's it's fully funded uh, to a large extent. Um, yeah, and like I say, 200% of GDP, and most of it, or or a good part of it, if I remember correctly, is about one third is in foreign assets. Uh, which, of course, in the end, especially because we are dependent on imports, that's exactly the type of assets that the Islamic yes, economy should actually be trying to build up in order to be monetarily sort of more secure going forward. To make sure that inflation doesn't doesn't basically increase in the, in the longer run.
1: But your state pension is what kind of percentage of um of income is that would you say your state pension? Uh,
2: so if you uh the absolute minimum is if i remember correctly 50% 56% of your wages um after basically you have so that's the like the final wages essentially. But most people, they have a third pillar um and in fact, for example if you if you contribute two percent um or yeah if you if you contribute two percent to your third pillar, the employer needs to contribute two percent as well, so most people they actually sign up for the third pillar as well so they have a
1: private pension on top of their state pension
0: correct exactly, yes this how are you geared towards exports because as a small country and exports are really important for your continued growth you have spoke a lot about the need um, for imports uh, currently has iceland got some kind of export strategy because scotland and the scottish government are very much fixated on this idea of export growth what's the situation in iceland
2: Up until two thousand and eight, we didn't really have much of an export sort of growth strategy, other than some aluminium smelters, uh, really. Um, Now, but so there is a we need to be a bit sort of specific about what we're talking about. So, uh, okay, just just as an example, um, up until two thousand and eight, Iceland had a current account deficit of. Usually, somewhere between five and up to 15 percent or so. As a comparison, of GDP, GDP. exactly. Yes, of GDP. Sorry, as a comparison, as I understand it right now, Scotland has it's not up to it's somewhere between five and 10 percent. Uh,
1: we don't don't have one, we don't have a currency, so we don't have a deficit. We don't have a deficit because we don't have a currency.
2: Well, you any deficit
1: that Scotland. It is notional because we don't have a currency. So you can't have oh, sure. a deficit yeah, yeah. unless okay. you...
2: Well, you... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can put it that way. But essentially, the difference in, in exports and in and imports in Iceland, we were importing more, um, no matter what currency you use to measure it, uh, than we were exporting. And we had a deficit up until about 2009. In 2009, we because the currency... Uh, collapsed by 50%. We were not able to buy as much from foreigners as before, and so obviously imports dropped. At the same time, exports increased because of tourism. And there are some different sort of underlying events and, and sort of d- dynamics that were pushing exports, uh, especially tourism, upwards. But right now, essentially, what we have is we have three pillars, essentially, when it comes to exports it's the fishing industry, it's the manufacturing or uh, aluminium smelters, and we have tourism. The problem or one specific point that I want to make sure that everybody understands is that this does not mean the, this is not exactly the foreign currency generation of the Icelandic economy, because exports via, for example, uh the aluminum smelters they are actually exported as, as well back to their foreign owners of the aluminium, of the aluminum smelters so the net currency generation of the economy is actually a bit less and it's in the end because iceland has a currency which foreigners are not accepting as a final payment of you know whatever iceland is is paying for we need to make sure in the long run that we have a basically balanced current account. Whether we have, uh, you know, whether that current account is financed by, for example, the pension funds having so many foreign assets which give dividends, which then are used to pay for imports of whatever we are importing, or whether it's because we are selling tourism services to somebody, and then we use that money to pay for, say, petrol or fruits or whatever, it doesn't matter. In the long run, we need to make sure that there is going to be a balance on the current account. Otherwise, we will see a decrease in the value of the currency and inflation. But we can, of course, we we can finance it. We can have a current account deficit. But it will have economic consequences in the shape of inflation, for example, and lower value of the currency. And in fact, it sometimes it may even make sense to have a current account deficit because, for example, we might be importing um, investment goods. We may need to import something in order to build up better roads, which make the Icelandic economy more efficient and uh, it, you know more. it it having more capacity to export something more in the future so in the long run that's why i'm saying it needs to be balanced but there may be imbalances in the short term and what i mean with short term is perhaps four five six seven years even
1: i would really like to talk to you next time about the job guarantee about more about mmt um we have to um we have to let you go (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, thanks a lot for having me all the same. Uh it's been it's been fun and uh, I look forward to the next time. Yes,
0: Brilliant. thanks That's all cool. the for Thanks so much for your time. Bye
2: Thank now. You. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Until next time.
0: And there you go. Uh hope you enjoyed that. Um it was really good to watch that again and and it's incredible to think that um Iceland is 20% smaller. Than Edinburgh, you know. So I think that gives you some kind of idea of uh, whether or not this country is um, uh, too small uh, to um, to 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 cope. Uh, just give me one second as I bring um, Kieran uh, up on screen. Hello. Ah, uh, there you are. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, fantastic interview. So so such a rich seam of information. Many rich scenes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's incredible thinking about the size of Iceland, isn't it? I mean, it is just, it's tiny. I mean, geographically it's big, but it's so sparsely populated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, any highlights from you to pick out from that?
1: Well, I think um, the clip that you made to advertise the show, the idea of having a na- nationally efficient energy company really appeals to me. Um, you know, I think that's that's a really good idea, and he was also quick to point out uh, how efficient the Swiss train system was as well in comparison to when he was studying in Exeter, and um, that was clearly something that he noted.
0: Yeah, yeah, I thought the the privatisation uh, discussion, which I'm sure we'll come back to with other uh, guests, um, and just highlighting that the the UK is 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 this a complete outlier when it comes to privatisation. I thought it was interesting to hear, you know, even a small country like that didn't just jump to privatisation straight off. Um, I mean, I I wanted to highlight the um, part of the discussion you had with Olifor when you talk about the welfare state in Iceland. And, uh, you know, 56% of pension uh, is your... 56% of your final wage as your pension. Um, I know people will be happy to compare that to what we currently get from Westminster. Um, And I think it was 80% of unemployment, 80% of your salary is your unemployment benefit as well. I mean, when you think about the UK, that's just absolute chalk and cheese, isn't
1: it? Yeah, as I said to him, you know, it's a different situation in the Netherlands as well. It's much more humane.
0: Mm. I mean, I think when you talk about the welfare state in Iceland and and the Netherlands and anywhere else, I'd like viewers to compare this to the kind of heartless bloodhounds uh, that we have in, in Westminster. And, you know, there, there isn't a policy that more effectively sums up our political discourse and how the economy works in the removal of the university credit uplift. In terms of politics of this, um, this is perhaps the harshest thing the UK government has ever done. It's removing money from the most disadvantaged people in the UK, uh, working and non-working families at a time when they need it most. There's rising prices, especially on utilities and housing, which, of course, disproportionately affect those who have the least disposable income. I think this is just a shameless display of power by Westminster, and I think this is pol- power politics. And of course, regular viewers of the show know that this is a choice, a cold and calculated choice uh, by the government. The government could easily fund this, um, and as Olafur said in his interview, it has its own currency, so it can fund anything it wants in its own currency. So this is a political choice, they could continue to put money into people's accounts, they could be using this fiscal deficit for what it was actually designed to do to support people when they need it most and we—and as we know it's its money that the government doesn't need to borrow, it doesn't even ever need to pay it back and I, I believe a society is judged by how it treats the most disadvantaged and, and I think this is the most important metric for the UK government and it's failing and it's failing badly and I think this just undermines the political and the economic um conversation uh, and ideological ideology of the conservative government
1: yeah they they always seem to have had this um the thinking of um, the undeserving poor that that's always been their thinking since i i you know i remember as a teenager in thatcher's time and mm. um, it's very strange and uh, and uh,
0: illogical yeah yeah I, I like the concept of the undeserving wealthy and the understanding rich i think that's an interesting an interesting one for us to discuss uh, well um we'll come to the end of this show please if you um if, if you've enjoyed it and if you'd like us to speak to other economists from other small nations then please do drop in who you would like us to speak to and if you've got any contacts with anyone in these countries uh, we'd love to follow up on them as well because you know we're It can be difficult, and Kim, you do a brilliant job on getting most of these people to come on to the programme, but it can be difficult. So if anyone does think of anyone or know anyone who would be a good guest, please do let us know. And before you go, please comment in the description beneath and just say good show or whatever you particularly enjoyed, and also like and share. We're looking ahead already to the other shows we've got this month. We've got three in October, and we're hoping to move to four a month a weekly show but um, Kieran and I haven't quite decided how we'll find the time uh, <laughs> to be able to, to be able to do that but that's what I'm planning to do but I've got three shows in October the next show um, is on the 20th and that's with Laurie McFarlane the economics editor at Open University uh, and we've got a fascinating discussion around housing and land in Scotland and there's been loads over the last couple of weeks around this so a lot to speak to Laurie about and then the following week we've got an episode with uh, uh, an American economist and Claudia, Sam. So lots to look forward to. You can book, look, bookmark those episodes now. And um, until two weeks' time, so you've got a little bit of a break, Karen, uh, and you for watching. Um, until then, bye for now.
1: Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>